begin with our hymn for the week, which Mrs. May is about to play. It is 869, and for our purposes this morning as an entrance hymn, we'll go ahead and sing all five stanzas. This morning.
Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us a heart to believe and a mouth to sing of your faithfulness and mercy all the days of our lives. Christ Jesus is our righteousness and strength. Grant us, in every time of need, the courage and confidence to look only to him who gave his life for us. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And that is the prayer the collect assigned to the first portion of Psalm 89 for this week, which uh, resumes our continuous reading through all 150 psalms, the praying of those. The longer psalms, such as 89, will be uh, divided a bit. Uh, Some of them get to be rather lengthy. But you'll notice from the catechesis notes for the week, these first 18 verses are a prayer in remembrance of the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord's faithfulness to his people is rooted in his mercy and loving kindness. The Lord keeps his promise of salvation. So the psalmist prays, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. And it's delightful that that opening of the psalm, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, corresponds to the gospel for this Sunday where the tax collector prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Psalm 89 is strongly messianic. Do you know what that term means? That there are connections very explicitly to the Messiah, to Christ, in the psalm. Actually, all the psalms are messianic, but there's ways in which some are more vivid than others. So it is strongly messianic. It was a contemplation by Ethan the Ezraite, who remembered that the Lord had chosen David and made an everlasting covenant with him. Remember, the children of Israel demanded a king to be like who? The rest of the neighbors around them. They've got a king. We've got a king. Okay? That's what's happening in the world today. You see socialism elsewhere, you know, like Argentina. So we need socialism too. Well, sorry about that. I couldn't control myself. The older I get, the less of a filter I have. <laughs> but Saul, uh, the, the Lord told them, Saul will be no good for you. And told Samuel, you've not rejected, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. But I'm going to give them a king that they demand. So that they will then learn, as we begin a new school year, some things can't be learned apart from experience. More about that later. But they gave, he gave them a king, and it was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. And he started out seemingly on a good foot but then veered off into impenitence, self-righteous pride that made him very paranoid and neurotic in his, in his behavior. And when, when David defeats Goliath, if you remember, as a young lad, that's the beginning of this intense and unconquerable jealousy on Saul's part. And he chases David around the country. But the Lord established David as a type of Christ, a type of the Messiah. 
Okay? So here it's a reference to that where Ethan, the Ezraite, remembered that the Lord had chosen David and made an everlasting covenant with him. Susan. I believe so. Okay. The Lord's covenant with David was fulfilled in the coming of the Christ, David's greater son, and in the righteousness and justice that he would establish through his death and resurrection. So uh, Susan's question about you know, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah is when after the captivity, there was the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple there. And so uh, the, the psalm recounts the Lord's faithfulness to Israel throughout her generations and then appeals to the promise that God made to David to reestablish his kingdom forever and that Davidic kingdom that is established forever is what you and I are a part of, namely the church. So David's greater son and the righteousness and justice that he would establish through his death and resurrection. This week's section of Psalm 89 ends confidently with the assertion that all believers and the nation's ruler are to rely upon what Christ has done for them. Quoting now, in your righteousness, you think the righteousness of Christ that covers our sin, they are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength. So Christ is the glory of our strength. Who do we trust in during this time of worldwide pandemic? Christ And Christ is the one who delivers us from the fear of death. Okay? Christians are not to fear death. Doesn't mean we necessarily enjoy the process of dying. But the point is we do not fear death. And we have responsibilities and obligations that transcend the mere existence of life and preservation of life, the responsibilities of a pastor to a congregation, of parents to children in this beginning of a new academic year, and so forth. Some responsibilities transcend the mere obsessive and paranoid holding on to life. Okay, so for our shield belongs to the Lord. I should have put that uh, Lord in all caps because it's Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. It's really great. So enjoy. I remember singing in uh, college, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known his faithfulness to all generations. There's a great choral piece on that. All right, so that is the psalm for the week. And it's just, again, I I am amazed at how these things uh, are so relevant to the rest of the church year, to now our own local calendars, we begin a new, a new school year. And at the beginning of every school year, we begin at the beginning of the catechism, and we walk slowly through it. These first six weeks of school are on the Ten Commandments. This week, the first and the second commandments, and they are listed at the bottom of the congregation at prayer, and then there are prayers on the second side. Before getting to those, the verses now are intentionally chosen to correspond to the catechism for the week. So, you shall have no other gods. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Or See, I'm bilingual. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. See, I can speak in both languages just fine. 
Uh, we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. So our verse for the week is from Psalm 90. Now, you may have prayed it this week because it was one of the psalms in the psalm table. This is a prayer of Moses, one of the few psalms that are directly attributed to Moses. And Beth and I were talking about this, and she had it in her mind because in that Psalm 90, it talks about the, the length of a man's life is 70 years. How many of you are 70 or older? Raise your hand. Or if by reason of strength they be 80, how many of you are 80 or older? Raise your hand. Get it up while you still can. And, and Beth is coming. It wasn't Moses like 500. No, that's the patriarchs. And it's a good thing to remember, Moses' life was in a, had a Trinitarian shape to it. It was, he was 120 years old. Three sets of 40. Did I get the right math right? <laughs> the first 40 years he served as prince of Egypt, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Then he has to flee Egypt when he comes to the aid of his countryman who was killed by uh, an Egyptian. And then the next 40 years, he's in Midian on the other side of uh, the Gulf of, of Suez and in the land of Midian. And he's a shepherd for 40 years. And he marries Zipporah. And he has Gershom. Uh, and uh, he tends the flock there until at the end of the 40 years when he's 80 years old, then he's called into the ministry as a prophet. How about that? So, I mean, I'm not even 60 yet. So he was called when he was 80. And, uh, of course, there was significance to that that he would learn to rely upon the Lord alone. But the last 40 years of his life probably were the worst, at least in terms of suffering uh, as the, he, he was either rejected by Pharaoh or the children of Israel comes to deliver them and they shake their fists at him. Okay? Yes, Cindy. Do you know the life expectancy in that? I mean, would it have been... He just told you. Well, no, 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 no. Like, okay, so Moses was 120, but did everybody else live to be 120? No. No, that's what he says in the psalm. Usually it's 70 or 80 years. Uh -huh. Now, there are those that live older than that, like my mother's 90, almost 91. And there were then, too. But then wouldn't Pharaoh say, this man is 80, why is he... Yeah, but the, the, in the Torah, it says his natural vigor was not, was not abated. Just like mine. I mean, I seem like I'm 20, right? <laughs> okay. So... Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. When you, when you understand, this is a psalm of Moses, and you understand the history, and he's talking about the congregation of Israel, what a beautiful, comforting thing. I realize that you like to sing the hymn, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, but it's actually not true. There's nothing new under the sun. And in fact, the pandemic that we are under now, if you even want to call it that, which I wouldn't, I don't think it measures up to that, quite to that standard, is far, far less significant than some of the pandemics and pestilences that have killed millions uh, prior to, to this year. 
It doesn't mean you don't take it seriously and all that sort of thing. But finally, our trust is in, is in the Lord. And this is what Psalm 91 and 2, it connects to the first and the second commandments. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Notice how Moses, who wrote Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is hearkening back to that assertion, God is the source of all things. Then who do you think we ought to trust in? Okay? We honor the civil authorities as much as we are able. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And what belongs to God is ultimate trust and fear and love. For he alone has the truth. See? Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, the, the word Lord there, again, we should have uh, capitalized that. It would be uh, Yahweh, the eternal God of the promise of salvation. Okay, I must move forward. There are two prayers on the second side, uh, on the first commandment. And you'll notice when, when the Lord says, you shall have no other gods. Okay. Philip, allow people to enter the, uh, the nave. I, I really should say that, too. I, I know some of you are unconcerned, but when you have your conversations or three or four people right at the threshold of the nave, for anyone who is sensitive about uh, some distancing and would like to just come in and say, you block their path. So get out of the way. In the name of Jesus. So... When the commandment says, thou shalt have no other gods, or you shall have no other gods, you have to know who is speaking. So the prayers pick up on that. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the only true and living God. Or in the second prayer, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you teach us to trust in you above all things. Okay? So this is the God who gave us the Ten Commandments and who speaks. The first prayer in the first and the second commandments, highlights uh, especially the explanation, primary text and explanation in simple ways where you're just taking that text of the catechism and using it as a prayer. The longer prayer also uses language from the catechism, but it generally has in it most of what Luther called his four points for praying the catechism or praying a Bible verse and so forth. And those four parts are that you use it as a teaching. So you speak to God what he has taught you. Secondly, you give thanks to God for what he has taught you. Third, you use it as an occasion for a confession of sin. And then fourthly, as an occasion to petition him. So if you think about, if the first commandment is demanding trust, then we confess our lack of trust and we pray for trust. You follow that? So you got confession and then petitioning. So just to take the first commandment, the second longer prayer for you, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, here's the first part. You teach us to trust in you above all things because you are the only true and living God. You love us 
and provide us with everything that we need for our life and salvation. There's speaking back to God what he teaches. Now a confession. Forgive us for making gods out of ourselves. Forgive us for trusting in our works, money, pleasures, or anything in this world more than we trust in you. Now the petition. By your forgiveness, teach me or us to fear, love, and trust in you above all things. For you live and reign, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. So you'll notice these patterns in those prayers. All right. Finally, from the congregation at prayer, um, the Bible readings for the week, there are two of them. And the Bible narrative, which is the first one listed, that's what we go, we, we will have next week in chapel for all of the children, kindergarten and up. The Bible narrative is what I encourage you to use at home. The second reading is, in this case, from the epistle to the Hebrews, is not necessarily intended for families with small children. But as the children grow, like the Franklin household, they could, they could pray both, or read both readings and chat about them because the kids are older. In fact, is anyone living at home now? Not really. You know, but if they were there for dinner, you could have both. You know? or, or if... Um, the Thony household, you've got, I mean, Wyatt can handle these. He's not a little poopsie any longer. Right? So he can handle those two along with Morgan and John. Okay? But the, the first reading, the biblical narrative, is intended to be this um, principle Bible story narrative reading for all ages. The second as there's a bit of maturity. Now, the, second, the, the first readings are part of the Lutheran Catechesis daily prayer lectionary. Last year's Old Testament readings took us from creation to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And then, you remember, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew throughout the summer, just walking through that. That was the first reading. As we begin a new academic year, we pick up where we left off in the Old Testament, the giving of the law on Sinai, the Ten Commandments is where we left off. Here, Moses receives the law upon tablets of stone. Follow that? And it will be, those narratives will be the giving of the law on Sinai up until the beginning of the monarchy of King David. Okay? Next year it'll be from the monarchy of David through the exiles and return of the exiles. Okay? So that's what you have this year. Now, in these Bible narratives, you have all of this stuff, like look at the Ark of the Covenant the priestly garments, the ransom money, the Sabbath law. Those are all Monday through Friday or when school days are in session. This is why the book of Hebrews, which deals so much with the liturgy of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, is used. Now, it's not particularly that every Hebrews reading necessarily has a direct correspondence to the to the narrative for that day, but because it's a walk through the book of Hebrews. So we'll read all of Hebrews if you take up the second lesson, but then you will see how they 
connect together with the giving of the law on Sinai and all of that liturgical stuff and then what the apostle says in Hebrews as he catechizes the church that Christ is the fulfillment of all that Old Testament worship. Okay. Any uh, questions about that? Now, the congregation at prayer, which provides for families and individuals and couples material to use in your devotion at home, remember, you can use as much or as little as your family age and size maturity level dictates. Okay? There is a structure to it if you followed it strictly speaking, but please, I would rather you pray the psalm for the week and look forward to next Sunday's readings uh, throughout the week uh, than being overwhelmed and doing nothing at all. So there's lots of ways that you can use it. In that vein, the Sunday school program this year is uh, encouraging families to take that lesson that I will provide, and we'll be going over that next, uh, in the uh, Three Men in the Fiery Furnace. It's chosen because it's a catechism story on the first and second commandments, which is this week in the congregation at prayer. So what you picked up at the door, Three Men in the Fiery Furnace, it says catechism story number one, and the congregation at prayer, they go very well together. They're intended to be used together. Sunday school stories for the week will be either catechism stories or church year stories. So we get around Christmas time, I mean, you're going to be hearing in the family with small children narratives leading up to and including the birth of Jesus and so forth. Okay? But it's intended to be used together. And on the first Tuesday of the month, I'm giving help to individuals and parents on how they might make use of it in the home as well as going over the upcoming lessons. Okay? Any, any question at all about that? All right. You'll also want to know if you have a four-year-old in preschool, because we have a four-year-old preschool class this year, the, the schedule of Sunday school stories or family weekly stories for Sunday school in the home are the same ones that will be used by Mrs. Ferguson with the four-year-old preschool, okay? So there's great continuity here. And one of the things you need to remember about children, and especially the younger they are, but, but this is true also like of my granddaughter Sarah, who is in, uh, going into second grade, they want to hear stories more than once. So when they hear it and they become familiar with it, Tell it again. I can't tell you how many times Harold the Happy Handyman, a book that my wife despised, uh, the boys would bring to me to read to them. It was a, it's a great book, children's book on Christian vocation, but more about that later. <laughs> Isn't it true? Yeah, she just got sick of it. But anyway, um, but the kids don't get sick of it. So, you know, if you take Three Men in the Fiery Furnace and... Here I'm going over it today, and I'll go over uh, the, the Sunday school story again next week before we start our intensive study on the theology of the Lutheran day school during Bible class. But it's good. It's a way in which I'll teach it to you at your level, and then depending on the age level of the kids in your home, you teach it at that level. So I can assure you, um, 
Mrs. Ferguson will not be teaching the four-year-old preschool class this lesson the way I'm teaching it to you today. Okay, so it has to be age appropriate. All right. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, 1 through 28. Oh, while we're doing that, you, don't, you, can, you can come to the Didache Divine Service if, you're, uh, if you have Mondays available at 10.30 in the morning, even if you don't sign up. It's not a requirement to sign up, but I am going to send it around. There's also a clipboard on the bulletin board. We're just trying to get a sense of how many might be coming on Mondays for, for the Didache Divine Service uh, so that we have enough materials uh, available. So I'll send that around. All right, the three men in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When did they live in Israel's uh, history? Don't all speak at once, it's, it's overwhelming. The time of Daniel. During the Babylonian captivity, during the time of Daniel, so it's after 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Babylon, uh, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. These three, along with Daniel and many others, were carried off into captivity. That's what they did. The spoils of victory included not only silver and gold and commodities like that, but it also included the, the, the uh, brain trust and the prominent officials of society, government, and culture that would be carried off. Okay. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, were among those. And does anybody know what they did in the land of exile under King Nebuchadnezzar? Philip! They were civil authorities, effectively. Yeah, they, they were underlings to Nebuchadnezzar, part of the... <laughs> Part of the deep state of the Babylonian Empire. Yeah, okay. So they served as advisors. They had civil responsibilities. Why would a uh, ruler do that? Well, he tapped into the talents and expertise of the, of the peoples that he conquered. And he conquered more than just Judah, you know. But So he would bring those in, allow them to also keep tabs on them. But uh, they brought their own level of expertise into the realm. Okay. Now, this is a fantastic story on so many levels. One of the things it does, as the entire book of Daniel does, is it teaches us what it is to live faithfully as believers in a foreign land, among a people who are not Christian. We live in a foreign land today in the United States. You, you cannot turn on the news and listen to the rhetoric of politicians and say that this is salutary Christian talk. Okay? So, what is our disposition? Well, in the case of Daniel, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they lived by faith in the Lord above all things and in loving service to the society and culture and government of Nebuchadnezzar in which they lived, to the extent that they could do so in love for the neighbor and the welfare of others without betraying God. 
Okay? So sometimes there's a tension there. But we see in Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't do a bad job when they served as governments to put the screws to this conqueror of Judah. Rather, they wanted Nebuchadnezzar to succeed. They wanted him to do well. Whether you like President Trump or don't like President Trump or like Governor Evers or don't like Governor Evers, we should want them to do well and want them to succeed under the rule of law, the maintenance of justice for the sake of the church and for the general population. The sermon this morning, Lord have mercy upon us all. Okay? So that's the disposition. There's so much to learn from their example. But our purpose this morning is especially going to focus upon we will not bend the knee to you, O Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's a great thing in this uh, narrative because you hear this repeated phrase about the sound of the Psalter and so forth, and that's when you're supposed to bow down and, and worship. And it keeps repeating this phrase over and over again because it's it's like the liturgy of our day. Let me give you an example. Say the word or the phrase, Black Lives Matter. And then there's a genuflecting. Okay? Now, Black Lives Matter Incorporated is a Marxist organization, as we've discussed a little bit uh, in previous Bible classes. Of course, black lives matter, so do Asian lives, so all people matter, and as Christians, we have a unique perspective there. But it's an example where uh, there's the political correctness of our day, where the siren sounds, and then everyone is to bow the knee, and if you don't, Lesage, you're out of here, we'll fire your butt, okay? You get the idea? Which is very equivalent to what you have in what was demanded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You bow the knee to this idol, and if you don't, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. At least we haven't gotten that far yet. Okay, so with that in mind, let's take a look at this text. I just love reading this text. It's the, um, it is the, uh, the uh, last reading for the Easter vigil service, and there's a reason for that. Is the baptized, the ancient Easter vigil was based on the, the, the liturgy of waiting for the resurrection of Christ that took place during the period where Christianity was illegal and under persecution. And the period of catechization of adult converts was long because they didn't want them to fall away from their faith and deny their baptism. Okay? So as uh, my son Andrew said this week in an email response to me, there's a reason why this is the last of the readings at the Easter Vigil. Because this is the faith that we are all called to when we say, I will suffer everything, even death, rather than fall away from you, Lord Jesus. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That's about a 90-foot tall statue. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces of the deep state to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
I, it doesn't say deep state in there, but you get the idea. Do you think a lot of 